wrapping up Daniel chapter 4, this is a, an odd kind of prodigal son story. Um, and it's a great reminder to us, anytime we read an account like this, this that we're about to look at, to be reminded to ask ourselves where we are in regards to our relationship to our eternal Father. Where do we stand right now? Are we, are we someone who's just, you know, kind of thrown a shoe in his face and we're storming out the door and now would be a good time to realize it and turn it around? Have we been gone a long, long, long time? Maybe we've, maybe we've never known him or, or, or are we away in a foreign city? All these different options in our minds for where we are created for us in this picture it's a story of restoration, and that's really the story of, of the race of mankind, is the story of restoration that created, prepared to live life fully, completely, abundantly, and yet we consistently kind of shoot ourselves in the feet, undermine ourselves, and, uh, and then looking for the way to live that out. And we got the kind of the greatest example of that in all of history here in this account in Daniel chapter 6. So hopefully you know you've been following along. We have Nebuchadnezzar, maybe the greatest man who ever lived in his own time. We have him having yet another dream, troubled by it, calls together all his wise men. None of them are able to help. Finally, he calls in Daniel. Daniel tells him what the dream means, and it's bad news. It starts really beautifully. You're a great tree. We've talked about that week after week, the great, beautiful nature of that analogy and that compliment to Nebuchadnezzar. Then we go, the bad news is God has proclaimed that the future for this great tree includes being cut down. Now what we get that's so shocking, we looked at this at Father's Day, that's so shocking is God's judgment is going to fall on this tree, the tree is going to be cut down, and yet in the very dream itself is also included this message, and the tree will be restored. That's, a, that's an amazing picture, this if you grew up with this picture of the kind of Old Testament robo-God who's kind of out to get you, kind of the evil Santa who's watching out for you to see if he can get you, that's a, it's a misunderstanding. Sadly, it's sometimes taught that way, but that's a misunderstanding of, of God as he is represented in the Old Testament, um, which would require way more time than we have this morning to dig into, that we've been talking about it across the months. But here we have a God who is going to teach uh, a very, very important life lesson to Nebuchadnezzar and then he's going to restore him. Understand, this is not even someone who follows him necessarily. So all of these things that have been prophesied in Daniel 4, 1-27, through we get to verse 28, and it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So here you have this, sometimes you've got Nebuchadnezzar talking in first person. Sometimes you have him talking in third person. It's an interesting, as he as king, the great emperor of the world at the time, is kind of bouncing back and forth in this. We talked about how maybe he had Daniel writing this, scribing this for him. But we get to verse 28, and Nebuchadnezzar is telling, letting us know, all of this came upon me, all of it. I want you to know this is exactly what happened. Now me, Chris Legg, standing up here on the stage, wants you to know that this is what happened. Here's what's wild. This is 2,600 years ago when this would have happened, approximately. And the histories from back then are pretty terrible. We just don't have hardly any history going back that far. We have little bits of, the, like, if we find something, it's because it's found on a stone tablet or something like that. That's essentially the only thing we get from that far back. And, and we're going to talk next week in detail. Next week, I'm going to talk about the difference between um, a textbook, 
a history textbook. So many of you, if you grew up here in East Texas or you or grew up going to church, you grew up with probably this understanding of, of either the Bible as a textbook um, or the Bible as a magic book. Either it's this kind of magical tome that you can kind of hang around your neck or you put in your house and it chases away evil spirits. And uh, that would be a jack-o'-lantern, by the way. You're thinking jack-o'-lantern. That's not the Bible. And the Bible doesn't have that at all. The Bible is a, is a revealed truth of God in the written form inspired by the Holy Spirit through various people, dozens of people across thousands of years or hundreds of years. And so here we have 2,600 years ago, there's very, very little but what's amazing is, and by the way, the book of Daniel in secular historical terms is often, is, it, there's a problem, and we're going to talk about it in detail next week. There's a problem in that the secular historical terms, they want to put Daniel having been written between about the year 200 and the year 100 B.C. We'll explain that next time. But Daniel is claiming to have been written nearer 600 B.C., and so, so which of these is it? And you're going to get to see some really fascinating evidence for the idea that it was written in 600 B.C. next week. It's a really great evidence. Here we have an event that's really kind of wild, that you have this in this historical, narrative, biographical book of prophecy and apocryphal literature. I'm telling you, when you're teaching on the literary forms of the Bible, Daniel's fun because pretty much Daniel has all of them, all wrapped up in one book, and they inter, they're intermixed and they're, they're integrated together. But a fragmental story from the Dead Sea Scrolls includes this strange little fragment called the Prayer of Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus would have been, next week we'll talk more about Nabonidus, he would have been Belshazzar's father. He would have been the next great king after Nebuchadnezzar Babylon. There were a few offspring of, of Nebuchadnezzar who were really didn't manage to pull anything off for any period of time, and eventually Nabonidus comes in and kind of in a coup takes over and Nabonidus was almost certainly married to Nebuchadnezzar's, one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. This will make more sense next week. I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you. But the, the, the fragment of the prayer of Nabonidus is incredibly similar to this account in Daniel chapter 4. It tells how Nabonidus was smitten by an inflammation for seven years while in a, an oasis city. How a Jewish seer explained to him that this was because he was an idol worshiper and then other passages extremely fragmented introduce a dream narrative. So it may be that there's a story, another historical story, that was built on what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. That's, that's always, you always be looking for parallel stories connected from a similar time period. So there's great account happenings, and at some point Nabonidus begins to tell the story, or his people do, that it was about him, maybe not about Nebuchadnezzar. That happens a lot in history. The parallels are extremely close it's not that Daniel 4 would necessarily be based on that prayer, but that each of them are connected to the same historical event. Another fragment in the British Museum shows Nebuchadnezzar's eldest son. Listen to this. El Nebuchadnezzar's eldest son, a guy, I'm not kidding, his name is Evil Merodach. Um, evil didn't mean the same thing in their language as it does now, but that's his name, Evil Merodach. Um, that, that may indicate that he took over as regent. This is kind of interesting. So for a long time, stories like this are treated as purely fictional. They're just flat myth. Right, Nebuchadnezzar got crazy for a period of time. Sure, that happened. But then what typical ha typically happens is more and more evidences are found, little hints that you go, oh, wait, wait, something happened. So what we have is this, is this fragment that indicates that, in fact, for a period of time near the end of his rule, Nebuchadnezzar was sick. 
He was not connected to ruling his kingdom very well. He was, he was neglecting his family, his children. And there's writing that talks about that happening. It appears, quote, His life appeared to be of no value to him. He did not show love to his son or his daughter. Now, these are fragments. They're bits and pieces. We don't have a lot. It's not like there's a, a, a piece of rock that has the entire story lit out on there. But it is intriguing that here we have this Daniel account that says that, that Nebuchadnezzar goes through a period of time in his life, which as we see, where he's essentially insane, disconnected from reality, living as though he were an animal, not a human. And then we find accounts like this. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar did spend a period of his time apparently disconnected from his rule and from his family. Maybe these are the same account. Anyway, we'll talk more about this next week. There's some really fun stuff in the next chapter. Because the next chapter is largely about a man named Belshazzar. And until the 1800s, so from, two, from the years about zero until the 1800s, Belshazzar was thought of as a totally mythical, fictional character. That he did not exist in history at all. That happens a lot with biblical history. And then they start finding things and like, oh, whoops. So we'll talk about that next time. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said. Now, it's, it's funny, it says answered. That's a little bit of a Hebrew, Hebrew Aramaic type of issue, this language. But, but to say here that he answered is kind of fun because it's like he's actually, he didn't answer, he just spoke. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? I often wonder, is the 12 months meant to, is it, were we meant to get for 12 months that he did a good job for 12 months? Like, this was going to happen immediately, and for 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar kind of held it together. That he's like going around going, yep, I'm going to do what's right, I'm going to be righteous, I'm going to be humble, I'm going to do these different things, and he just couldn't keep it up? Or maybe, given what we've seen about him, remember when he referenced the idea that what God will save you from my hand, that he's actually defying God in this? I don't care what Daniel said. I made this. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe, maybe this isn't a sweet little thing. Maybe this is Nebuchadnezzar standing out there overlooking his kingdom and going, and he's finally answering Daniel a year later. Some of you probably have that. You get in a fight, and you, in like hours later or whatever, you think of something smart to say. Anybody else do that? Just me? So here we have, maybe that's this. A year later, Nebuchadnezzar goes like, you know, Daniel, who's not there, you know, the truth is, I did build this. Our sin is what makes us human in one sense. But our sins are also proof that there is a beast that lives within us. There's, a, there's something that's kind of subhuman that lives in us as well called the flesh. The flesh is that thing that the Bible writers talk about. Jesus talks about it being weak. And, and Paul talks about it being what leads us. I'm about to read from James it's that part of us that just is kind of that whiny little baby in us. Just like, I don't, I don't want to be cold, right? I don't, I don't want to be tired. It's, it's, it's what I see in my kids when they're bouncing around because they have endless amounts of energy, and I go, hey, you know what, could you real quick take a second and, and put away those clothes? And they turn into a 1960s protester, just totally limp, like, oh, I can't, I can't, oh, I'm so tired, I need a nap. Like, that's the flesh, Right? I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. I don't want to feel lonely. I want, I want that thing, but I can't afford that thing. And the flesh, the flesh just doesn't care how we feel better. It just wants us to feel better. 
If I have to steal that thing to feel better, well, the, the flesh doesn't care. That part of us, that's kind of that subhuman in us. If I have to use another person to feel better, then that's, that's what I do. That's the flesh. And we all, we all experience this. The example that I use 99% of the time when I'm teaching on the flesh is what? Some of y'all know. No? Surprised you don't know this. Donuts. Right? How many of you have ever said to yourself some version of, I'm only going to have one? You do it with pick, pick anything. I'm only going to have one donut. I'm only going to have one of that dessert. I'm just going to have one bite of that chocolate cake. Just one bite. I'm just going to, I'm going to eat just one half of the, of the little Debbie two, two snacks thing. I'm just going to eat one of the two, not both of them. I'm just going to eat one of the Twix bars. I'm not going to eat both of the Twix bars. Anybody? Okay, good. Yes, it's not just me. And, I mean, you would, you would like swear before God as my witness, I'm only going to have one donut. And then someone offers you a second one and you go, eh, sure, yeah, I'll take another, right? That's the flesh. Sugar feels good. I like how sugar feels in my body. It, it makes me happy. And so it's hard to say, that's the flesh in us. It just, we just want to feel better. That's the flesh. Well, James tells us, that's James chapter 1. If you don't know what to read in the Bible and you want to read something that, like it was written, a letter written to you, James is a good choice. Um, James, you could read the entirety of the book of James today, and you wouldn't find anything that needs to be interpreted updated. It's exactly the same things we deal with now in every scenario. James chapter 1, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. That word there, flesh. That desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Our own evil little desires, our own little, like, oh, but I want that. And then that's, which is not, that's just temptation. We're lured at that point. And then the next step is, then we give in to it. It's too hard. It's too, it's too hard to do the right thing. It's just so easy to do the wrong thing. And, and that's who we all are. That's why we need a Savior. If you're depending on yourself to save you, as Justin said a minute ago, dude, apparently a donut is what's going to attract me out of heaven someday. I better... I better have something greater than me to hold me. I need something stronger than me. Now, what I love is that Nebuchadnezzar says it out loud. He says the quiet part out loud. You're not supposed to say this kind of stuff out loud. Everyone thinks this, but don't say it. Is this not great Babylon, which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Everyone thinks that. Nebuchadnezzar actually says it. Maybe he says it out loud. <coughs> what matters is he believed it. He believed this to be true. This is the root of pride. My way or God's way? Who knows better really? Me or God? We're all proud. Most of us know not to say it. Most of us know not to say the things that run through our mind that prove how egocentric we are, how narcissistic we are. We really do think that we're somewhat better than all people. I want you to just stop and think about that I am standing up here Sunday after Sunday telling you what God says. Isn't there going to be a root of pride somewhere down in that? I mean, it's got to be a constant to be constantly examining and going, who do I think I am to be the one standing up in front of people? Like, there's something I'm too comfortable with if that's the case. All of us wrestle with this. A hundred percent of us have this fleshly, narcissistic child in us. 
that demands to be loved and liked and wants to be, wants to be impressive to everybody and loved by everybody. I can do better than what God has given me. That's pride. I don't need to live by what God says. My, my own morality. I have my own religion. I understand reality better than what's revealed in Scripture. That's what it says in Scripture, but I'm smarter than that. I'm, I'm more clever than that. I'm smarter, wiser, and more insightful than the teachings of Jesus Christ. Look at this thing that I have done, as Nebuchadnezzar says. And here's what's wild. If anyone in all of history had the ground to stand on, it was Nebuchadnezzar. He'd built a mighty kingdom from almost nothing. It's all about me. The egocentric, we orbit ourselves, or at least that this should be about me. One of my former pastors used to talk about his three favorite people in the world were me, myself, and I. Those were his three favorite people. This is what everything should be about. And the response, by the way, to Nebuchadnezzar saying the the quiet part out loud in defiance against what God has shown him and taught him now numerous times is immediate. While the world's words were still in the king's mouth. This is an instantaneous response. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven fell. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You'll be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Now, who speaks here? Is it the Most High God Himself speaking? Is it that watcher from the dream? Um, Whatever it is, there is someone who's been waiting for Nebuchadnezzar to defy God in this. And the minute he does, that person says, there it is. There it is. That's what we've been waiting for. Now it is totally justified to step in. He was warned. If God gives him the warning, you got to love the, the type of God who not only warns in advance, not only disciplines, but promises to restore. That's such a different type of God than many of us were taught about as children sometimes. Now, this could just mean... Uh, the, the, when it says the idea that while that we, there's a they, if you're looking at an older version, it'll say like they will do this and they will do that. Um, it's, it's probably the ESV version we have here is pretty good about um, kind of like this is, the, this is what's going to happen according to God's discipline. The judgment is pronounced and rendered. There's a question, and, and the question I wonder is it seems like that the instantaneous response to the voice from heaven saying, okay, there it is. Now you've said it, now you've proclaimed it, now you've defied the God of heaven, and here's the consequence, bang, that you don't have Nebuchadnezzar immediately going, no, 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 I didn't mean mean it. I don't know if he had that opportunity. I don't know if there wasn't a chance for that. Or if truly, and if we're honest with (coughs) ourselves, so (coughs) a, a couple years ago at youth camp, we had a speaker who reminded the kids this brilliant statement. We like to identify with the heroes of the Bible. We don't, we don't often take the moment to identify with kind of the villains of the Bible. But a lot of times we're probably more, more, more meant to identify with the villain, and this is one of them. Here you have Nebuchadnezzar. Have we ever had a time when you've said, I know I'm wrong, I know I'll face discipline, and I just don't care? Yes? I think very easily that could be exact. Nebuchadnezzar is still in defiance 
I don't know exactly how this plays out, but it's not time yet. Whatever it is, the time for judgment isn't done. I, I believe that's what the seven means. It's not necessarily seven days or seven hours or seven weeks or seven months or seven years or any of that. The Bible's is totally unclear about, I think the word seven periods means the correct number, the fulfilled number, until we're done, is the idea. I assume the reason he did not say that is because he did mean it. It wasn't enough for him now to parrot right words. It's not enough for a child to to acknowledge they've done wrong only because they're caught. That doesn't indicate a change of heart. So his heart needs to be disciplined and then restored. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Now, a few weeks ago, guess a month ago, uh, John Keeling, when he taught, mentioned that I might mention the psychological aspects to this. Um, There are, certainly, there are psychological ways that stuff like this can happen to people. Uh, They're actually life choice people. I'm not... I decided not to go with the whole, it would like, just be too easy to feel like I was mocking people to come at it from the whole like other kins or therians or, or the people who dress like animals and as a lifestyle choice. Um, I just was like, you know what, I'm just going to stay away from that. Um, but aside from the fact that don't, don't go looking for that stuff, it's, that's some, some strange stuff out there. But here we have what matters here is we have a defiance of humanity and a decision to live with the animals. There are people who do that as play actors, as religious beliefs, or very often even a dissociative disorder. You have gender identity disorder, and you actually have species identity disorder. That can happen. Somebody can actually have that. They have a, this brief psychotic disorder, a break, so to speak. But in this case, though this is clearly a form of dissociative disorder, definitely you have Nebuchadnezzar being disconnected from reality this, I don't think this is just because he had a mental illness. I think this is a clear, enacted judgment of God on Nebuchadnezzar in this situation. He didn't have an aneurysm or something like that that causes this. This is God teaching him, you are not above humanity. Nebuchadnezzar thinks, I am greater than the greatest man. And God says, I'm going to give you a chance to live for a little while as less than a man in order to teach you that. You are not better. You are not greater. You're not a God. You are merely a human being. And I have utter sovereignty over human beings, not you. And so he's going to get the chance to live as a beast, so to speak. These dreams and visions and special connections with God are meant to teach us things in addition to what happens in the moment. So he takes on the traits that are like an animal. His nails grow long and unkempt. He's eating non-foods like grass. His hair grows like eagle's feathers. Now, you may, you may go like, this has always weirded me out. I don't know if it's weirded you out. Like, his, his hair grew long like eagle's feathers. That's, would anyone else, that be how you describe someone whose hair grew too long? Like eagle's feathers? No, you'd be like a lion's mane or, or, or a, I don't know, some kind of animal. Cousin it. I don't know. It's like his, his hair grew out like, well, his name, Nesher, the end of his word, then his name, Nesher, means eagle. And so this is almost certainly a play on words, that his hair grew long like Nesher, like Nebuchadnezzar, that's the that last part of his word there, is, is meant to probably be a play on he now was, not only was he named with the word eagle in his name, but now his, he began to look like the eagle that is in his name. So that's probably why it's, it uses that description. We don't know for sure, 
So longer than days, I guess, because it would take longer than this than few days for that to happen, but a few weeks, I don't know. Man is meant to have dominion over the beasts. We are not merely animals. We are meant to live in peace and appropriate dominion and harmony with them. The kingdom come has humans and beasts when the day comes, when there's a new Jerusalem on a new earth under a new heaven. Beasts and, and humans will live in harmony. We see hints of it happening in, during history in the biblical history. Noah, for example, and soon Daniel's going to show us that. There are angelic beings who have aspects like animals, but Adam was not merely an animal. Humans are not merely animals. We are amphibians, as C.S. Lewis says. We have the, the physical and the spiritual. We are animals, but we are not merely animals. Jesus is sent out into the wilderness with the wild beasts, it tells us. Again, Jesus is going to go enact some time with the wild beasts. This theme throughout the Bible, one of our themes is this theme of the beasts and mankind and how those interrelate with one another. Obviously, Eve was tempted by an animal in the garden originally. These stories are meant to, to remind us of one another. We have all these beasts presented in Revelation. And here, Daniel is going to represent something through Nebuchadnezzar as beastly, not living in harmony the way God intended. In other words, some people are like beasts, and when people act like animals, something is out of order. We're not animals. We're not supposed to act like animals. We're supposed, to be we're supposed to be distinguishable from the animals. And so when people begin to act like animals, something's wrong, something's broken. <clears throat> we know something's wrong. Nebuchadnezzar is acting like an animal here. He thought of himself as more than human. Now he's going to get the opportunity to live this out. You aren't more than human. You're merely man. And God made him into something less than man until one day he suddenly remembered the truth. Here's a great confession. The confession that Nebuchadnezzar ends up making is this one. You're God, I'm not. It's one of the great confessions that all humans have to reach at some point. Oh, you're God, I'm not. It's, it's hard for us because we love the idea of evaluating God. We love the idea of questioning Him. We talked about, we talked about that in the past. I showed the video of Stephen Fry being asked, when you, if there is a God and you stand before him someday, what will you say? And he says his first words would be, how dare you? It's an, it's an intriguing conversation to think about having with an almighty God. So here we have verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God. I bless the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? This is pretty good. The Most High God is to be honored. But the, think of the aspects that God of God that Nebuchadnezzar targets here. Okay, look at these. This isn't just a simple little praise chorus. Nebuchadnezzar specifically picks certain traits of God and draws attention to him in this memo. That Daniel chapter 4 is essentially a memo from Nebuchadnezzar to, his, to the whole world. This is pretty good. The Most High God is to be honored, but listen to them. His Lordship is forever. What has Nebuchadnezzar just learned about his Lordship? It can be taken like that. That's an important understanding. His kingdom endures 
What has Nebuchadnezzar just learned about his kingdom? It can be taken from him in an instant. His power transcend not just each man, but all of mankind. And Nebuchadnezzar has learned now he's just a man. And in the end, no one can rightly judge or evaluate him. <laughs> now, as a marriage counselor, I run into this all the time. <clears throat> we run into marriages that become what we call parent-child marriages. They're the ugliest of all the marriages. They're the, they're the ones in the most trouble, parent-child marriages, where the husband is the father and the wife is the teenage daughter, or the mother is the, I mean, the wife is the mother and the husband is the teenage son. And, and you develop these relationships where, where one of them is constantly, and, and the way we see that with the mother-son marriage is always that the husband comes in and says, I can never do anything right. That's always going to be his, his motto, kind of the flag he's going to wear. I can never do anything right. She criticizes everything I do. Nothing is ever good enough. And she says, do anything right. He doesn't do anything at all. Right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't ever do anything. He doesn't help. He does, he's irresponsible. He doesn't take care of things. He doesn't communicate well. He doesn't, and it develops this mother-son marriage that's just devastating. He feels evaluated all the time. And I think all marriages touch on these at times, and they can become these if you're not careful. And our marriage where we ran into that early on was the fact that Ginger knew everything about babies, and I knew nothing, nothing about babies, absolutely nothing. And so she, she had to learn to allow me to, to like dress them badly, for example. Any, anybody? Like that I'm like, that, that, that the child would come out after I dressed them and she'd be like, you're letting them wear, wear that? I'm like, that's what he wanted to wear. Like, I don't, I don't know. That doesn't work. And so here we have this, and that could create a breach in, in, in an in a intimate relationship very quickly when you have this I, I was early on in a marriage, I constantly evaluated her use of money. I was trained in money, and she wasn't as a child. And so we were, if we weren't careful, we were going to develop a parent-child marriage where I was the dad and she was the teenage daughter about money, and we had to break through that and get help and avoid those tendencies. This is the picture of the relationship with God that is the God-servant relationship where you're God and He's the servant. And, and that's not allowed. That's not, it doesn't work that way. And yet we often do that with God, don't we? God, how would you? And, and again, please hear me say, of course we question God. Of course we doubt. Of course we get angry. Things happen around us that we don't understand, that make no sense to us. Of course we get angry. We get frustrated. If you don't know that that's okay, you haven't read the Psalms recently. David, a man after God's own heart, is constantly frustrated and angry with God all through the Psalms. And that's totally acceptable. God is a big boy. He can handle our frustration and our anger. What we don't get to do is evaluate Him. Second guess that direction. No, see, I think you handled that incorrectly. Even in the questions that Job asked God with the problem of suffering, which is one of the number one reasons that people struggle with the whole belief in God, is the, trouble, the problem of suffering and evil in the world, is that there does come a point at which we have to trust that God knows what He's doing. That's not, again, I've told you before, that's not hard for me. I grew up with professors. They always knew more about what they were talking about than anybody else in the room did or ever would. That's just how that works. There are some people who understand things that I don't. I'm used to it. it happens all the time. 
That's, a, that's allowed. God's allowed to have that. God's allowed to be the one who does understand things that we don't. We can wonder. We can ask. We can seek understanding. We can beg and plead. And we can even cry. And God will never leave us or forsake us. But He may not explain Himself to us. One, that's like having the professor try to explain themselves to you. It may be so above your head you couldn't follow it anyway. I think that's what we're looking at the end of Job. But here you have Nebuchadnezzar who is one who's realizing, I don't get to question you, God. I don't get to demand something of you. I don't get to demand that you tell me how you did it. Daniel 4.30, and the king answered and said, remember this? This is what he said earlier. Is this not the great Babylon which I have built in my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of the majesty? That's what he said before. After what he says is clearly repenting. This is Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, yeah, I said that, but it's not true. I was wrong. Verse 36, at the same time my reason returned and for the glory of my kingdom, very same words. For the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Isn't that interesting? Here's one of the fascinating things I learned when I was reading through the Bible one time and finding this. God always, 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 all the time was saying, telling people, stop trying to make your name great. Stop trying to, to make your name great. And then you find passages where it says, and God made this person's name great. Isn't that interesting? It is not that God is not opposed to Nebuchadnezzar having might and glory and majesty. God's not opposed to that. God gave that to him. And God restored him to that. It wasn't the problem. God is not opposed to us having ambition or power or influence. God's not opposed to any of those type of things. He's not opposed to us having money or having um, significance or having name recognition or being famous. Or, he's not opposed to any of those kind of things. Clearly, he establishes that for Nebuchadnezzar in the beginning and reestablishes it at the end. What God is opposed to is for us to think that's about us. That's the problem. And so when we're able to constantly be deferring to him, he did not forsake Nebuchadnezzar. He restored him. What he had to do was teach him. It's to help him learn. You need me. You think you just need you, but you're wrong. You think the whole world just needs you, but you're wrong. That's us. Psalm 123, this language of lifting up our eyes. It has to do with being restored to sanity. Psalm 123, 1 and 2, To you I lift up my eyes, for you are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He has mercy on us. We recognize that humbly we need help, and we look to God for that help. That's the picture. Remember I mentioned the prodigal son? Luke 15, 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of the father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here I perish for hunger. He came to himself. There's a madness that we live in until we recognize we need help from God. It's like we're calling ourselves king, but we're wandering around eating grass. We turn and look, not to self, but to God. What keeps us from doing this? What kept Nebuchadnezzar from doing this for all those years? Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride 
He is able to humble. Pride is what keeps us from that. Pride is what gives us permission to say, no, no, this is how I'm going to do it. These are my rules. This is my standard that I prefer over God's. There's two main definitions. I, this was shocking to me, by the way. I went to, I just typed in pride definition in the online dictionary for pride. The, the two definitions it listed were both positive traits, that pride was positive, which explains why people, why, I mean, I think we're, if I remember correctly, we're in the middle of pride month right now. That, that, that literally as humans, we would be so engaged with this idea that somehow pride is positive that we would proclaim it, proudly proclaim our pride. That is not the biblical picture. It's just not there. Webster had the option for inordinate self-esteem. That's kind of good. That's, that's the kind of self-esteem that you get when everyone gets a trophy, right? Inordinate self-esteem. I don't remember, I couldn't find it, but years ago I read an article about um, American students, like 34 different countries, them testing the students on two scores, perceived math skills and perceived math skills. And if I remember correctly, Americans and Koreans scored first and last. Um, Americans scored first at perceived math skills, but last at math skills. And Korean kids scored first at math skills, but last at perceived math skills. Understand, neither one of those is humble. Those are both delusional, just in different ways. Humble would be to have an accurate picture, God's picture, understanding how things actually are. <coughs> Pride is this idea of <coughs> conceit, and it is a character flaw. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 13.10, this book of wisdom, Proverbs, has a lot to say about pride. I just pulled a few of them. By insolence, another word for pride, comes nothing but strife, but those who take advice, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. I love the language of 1 John 2 in John's, one of John's letters. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the word, that's the word lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, not from the Father, but from the world. Pride of life. I looked at numerous different commentaries on that language. Throughout all of Christendom, people have written thoughts about that phrase, pride of life, arrogant assumption, displays of vanity like a peacock, or may mean the pride of this age. What is this age proud of that is actually evil? What are we boasting about? What are we pretentious about? That we make more of ourselves, a pretense about something that isn't there. It's a false advertisement. That's this idea, the, the, that's what pride is. This is I create an image for you to love of a person who doesn't actually exist. That's pride. To trust in the empty self. Pride. One of my favorite Latin mottos is esse quam videre, to be, not seem. Pride is about seeming, not being. To believe in something that you are not. It is the sin that we confess most easily. You ever been in a confession service of some kind? We don't do a lot of those anymore. I've been to a couple of those. Everyone confesses pride. 
And, and they mean it. I, I'm not questioning them. That, that would also be a version of pride. But I think we can confess that easily because it's a little bit of like, if you were me, you would struggle with pride too. I think it's kind of what we're confessing to. I'm so awesome, I struggle with pride. And I know you understand that. The problem is we underestimate it most awfully. It is the root of all sin. It is the, was the sin of Satan. It was the sin of Eve. A corrupt sense, I like this definition best, a corrupt sense of one's personal value, status, or accomplishment. See, we're treasure to God. But when we corrupt that into something that is we are to be treasured like God or above God, it really comes down to this. Pride is the idolatry of self. I worship me. The final addition to our plaque. So we talked about how, you know, the old school, in the old school we had this mindset maybe that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar joined the, the local church when he did these things versus recognizing that probably what he was doing was adding a plaque in the temple um, among the pantheon of gods that they worshipped. And these things, what are the things that Nebuchadnezzar learns about Yahweh, the Most High God, the God of the Jewish people? What does he learn about them? Well, he learned early on. You know, we think I'd test this before Sunday morning. Lights, that is good. Well, I'm going to have to leave it hanging again because it's not exactly. It's off by a millimeter and that's too much. Okay. That the God of the Jews, the Most High God, he learned that God is the revealer of mysteries, the rescuer of his servants, and a humbler of the proud. That's good theology. If you want to know who God is, who the Most High God is, He is one who will humble the proud. He will also restore the proud when they recognize the truth of it. Pride is not something to celebrate or minimize or excuse. Instead, we hang our heads and we lower our eyes and we humble our hearts. I want to take a moment of silence here for us to, to just look in our own lives at what pride, where the infection of pride lives in our hearts. And as we do that, then we will pray together and confess it. So let's take just a moment of silence here with me and look in our own hearts. Ask this God's Spirit to reveal to us where our pride stays. So whether we're here or at home, just a moment. Father, we, um, as a race of humans, we have pride in that. We have pride in the part of the world where we live. We have pride in our nation sometimes. We have pride in our state. We have pride in our community. We attribute somehow to ourselves things that really have nothing to do with us. God, if we're not careful, we will end up having egocentric pride in your church or in our families. Lord, we have pride in our accomplishments and in our value. And Lord, the truth is that none of us have the place to, to proclaim pride as much as Nebuchadnezzar did. And he learned how big the fall can be 
that pride goeth before. Lord, teach us not to walk in pride. Our nation walks in pride. And we're experiencing that fall. Rescue us and restore us, Lord. Our people, our church, sometimes our denominations walk in pride. I pray you would rescue us and teach us to humble ourselves, to walk humbly with you, our God. God, in our own hearts, we often have pride in our friendships or pride in our intelligence or pride in our sports skills or our looks or our money or our accomplishments or our deeds or whatever these different things would be, Lord. And I pray that we would be reminded at all times that though these are good gifts to accept from you, And good things to work in, given that you have given us the capacity and the opportunity to work. At the same time, Lord, fundamentally, they are gifts from you, and they're not something that we can force or create without your mercy. So, God, I pray that anyone here who has the pride of salvation, believing that they can worship themselves alone, and that that will be justifiable someday, Lord, I pray you would rescue us from that. Teach us to humble ourselves under your mighty right hand, knowing that you love us and you restore us. You are so gentle, a bruised reed you don't break, and a smoldering wick you do not snuff out. And we need that kind of gentleness, Lord, from you today. We worship only you. We are not enough. We need you. We're not enough. We proclaim this and confess this, Lord, with all the gifts that you've given us, And we do so in your Son's name and according to the work of your Spirit and under your mighty hand. Amen.